Hey everybody, this is Senior Pastor Joshua B. Carson saying thank you for tuning into the CT Podcast. We hope that your time here, whether you're driving down the road or whether you're sitting at home with a journal and listening in, we hope that it's effective. Maybe it'll be inspirational, encouraging. Maybe it'll be thought-provoking. Regardless of what session you're listening to, we truly pray that this is a benefit to you and to your family. God bless and enjoy the podcast. Amen, amen. Can we put our hands together? Where would we be without the grace of God? What a mighty God. Amen, amen. It's appropriate when we're thinking about the grace of God as we're continuing in our lesson series on forgiveness. Because we would have no forgiveness extended to us if it were not for the grace of God of God. Amen. We know we don't deserve it. We know we don't earn it, but God freely gives it to us. Thankful for that. Amen. Thank you for being in God's house this morning. I'm going to read several verses and then we'll pray and I'll let you be seated. We're going to John chapter eight, beginning in verse one. And let me tell you a great big thanks to everyone in the sanctuary that has shifted out from maybe your normal seating so that we could make room for our youth to be able to have these side wings. It is special. They really enjoy being able to sit together, worship together, pray together, encourage one another And they were willing, they said, hey, okay, we'll give up the front seats, the best seats in the house, but can you just keep us together? And so thank you for being willing to open up these spots here on the sides so that at 11 o'clock they have the opportunity to do just that. Beginning in verse one here, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground and They which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her these powerful words. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin 
no more. Lord, we're asking this morning that you would allow your word to prick our hearts. God, it is our desire that we would apply it to our lives in the way that you would want us to. Help us, God, to get an understanding today of your remarkable forgiveness, God, and how you really look at us and desire to help us, God. Thank you for this time with you and time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. While Jesus taught in the temple somewhere else in Jerusalem, scribes and Pharisees had arrested a woman who they say was an adulterer. They brought this humiliated woman to the temple. They interrupted the teaching of Jesus and threw her down on the ground before him and before those that were listening to him and loudly announced that they had caught her in the very act of adultery. Now, we've all seen these kinds of people. Maybe you've been at the mall or you've been at a convenience store and someone walks in and it's obvious that they're upset and they're raising their voice. And the more people that notice them, the louder their voice gets because they're not trying to be quiet about it. They're wanting everyone's attention. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees had done. They wanted everybody to be watching what they were doing. They wanted to gain the attention of the entire crowd that Jesus was teaching because they had something that they thought was worthy of listening to. But everything about this situation, everything about it from the way that they walked in was suspicious. The scribes and the the Pharisees, they didn't need to humiliate her or bring her to Jesus. Jesus was not somebody that they looked to as a religious authority at all. If they were truly concerned about justice, they would have brought her before the Sanhedrin, who was tasked to handle these exact situations. And then there's the obvious. Adultery involves two people. So where was the guilty man? If the man somehow escaped when the woman was arrested, they made no effort to arrest him. And then how did they know? How did they understand where and when she would be committing this act? The scene seemed like a setup. But they were not engaging with some ordinary man. They were not. Jesus knew exactly what they were up to and the motives behind what they were doing. Their lack of understanding and who they were dealing with. They believed that they had Jesus in a trick bag. They truly believed that they had backed him into a corner. That when he responded to their question, what sayest thou? That there was no right answer for him to give. And he would suffer the consequences of what he would say. If he replied, let her go. They could accuse him of breaking the law of Moses, which clearly said that the execution by stoning was the penalty for adultery. This response would have turned the Jews against him and his teaching. But if he replied, execute her. 
they could accuse him of advocating they break Roman law. You see, the Romans loved law and order. So wherever the Romans conquered, the law was imposed. And they had stripped the Jewish authorities from being able to put forth corporate punishment for religious crimes. They would have to have permission from the Romans if they were to even execute this woman according to their own law. And so Jesus was in a spot where they thought they had him, where he could not win. And they were prepared. They were prepared for one of these responses to come forth. But they were not ready for what Jesus did next. If we paused right there and we had not read through the text, I allow my imagination to to be stirred up. And I think if I'm Jesus and they just brought this woman to me, they just tossed her to the ground, humiliating her in front of everyone. Somebody that Jesus cared dearly about, somebody that Jesus loved dearly. And we could say, well, no, hold on a minute. Didn't he meet her? For the first time in this moment? No. Jesus knew her before she was formed in her mother's womb. He knew everything about her. And what they were doing to her was causing him more pain than it would cause anybody else. Jesus knew her and cared for her. And they brought her in like a dog. And threw her to the ground before him. And I got to imagine within myself, there would have been some righteous indignation that would have rose up in Jesus. Right? We've seen it before where he's making whips and he's flipping tables and he's running the money changers out of the temple. We know he has it in him to respond in that way and to do it without it being sin, but it being right. And if we stopped there and I started thinking about it, I would predict that that's what would happen next. That Jesus would rise up and he would call out these phony accusers and he would deal with their sin and their motives. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. Jesus completely ignores them. He bends down and uses his finger to draw on the ground. But it's not the finger of just any man riding in the dirt. It is the same finger who had written the law on the stone tablets on Mount Sinai. This serves as a powerful reminder to us that he who wrote the law knows best how to interpret the law. Jesus knows how to handle this very delicate situation in a way that stays true to his mission. And he does not accuse the woman He doesn't say a word to the men. He sits there silent. They must have been fuming. I can't imagine after snatching her up and and storming with their little tribe down to the temple and and tossing her out in front of everybody and and raising their voice and, and getting everyone's attention that when they finally got to the place where they stopped talking and they expected Jesus to say something, he says nothing. And he stoops down to the ground as if he heard not a word that they said. 
I picture the veins and their neck bulging. Everyone is watching because they stirred up such a commotion. All eyes are on them and now Jesus is making them look ridiculous without saying a single word. It's in the heat of this moment as we're reading this story that we can easily overlook something that appears very odd to me. I don't understand it and it it just seems out of place as this accused woman has no record of saying anything. She said no word. I don't know about you, but when I'm backed into a corner and if, if my life is on the line, these men meant business. There was no joking. This was not a game. They had snatched her up. They had brought her down there. They were fully prepared to go through with the execution and her losing her life. And she's brought down there and she's tossed out there and we hear nothing in the text about her saying one thing to them, trying to raise her voice and say, no, it's a lie or, or no, I'm innocent or what about even I'm guilty, but I'm sorry. None of that comes out of her mouth. She sits there quietly and she was well aware this was not execution by the electric chair or a, a firing squad where in a moment it, it's a trigger is pulled or a switch is flipped and you lose your life. One second you're breathing, the next you're not. This was execution by stoning. I grabbed this rock out of my backyard as I was studying because I didn't want her to get lost as a character in a story. I wanted to humanize her. I wanted to think about what it would have been like to be her in that moment and to know what was coming next if something didn't drastically change. Brother Titus, you're the leader of our men's ministry. You're buff and strong. Get a hold of that. That's a rock. Yeah, that's that. Like there's no, there's no playing with that. This, you could take somebody's life by softly smashing them in the head with this. Wouldn't even take much work. Like this could, some people think that this is that lesson that Brother Fridley taught when we were back in the gym and he had all those weights and he looked like he was lifting 200 pounds and they were like fake weights. This is not fake. This is not a prop. Oh no. Were there people in here that still believe those were real weights? <laughs> really? Oh, I'm so sorry. He really is Superman. She knew what was coming. She more than likely maybe had witnessed it when someone else was executed by stoning at some point in her life. And I just can't imagine how she was so quiet about it. I can't imagine how she didn't say a word, how she didn't fight for her life. She thought that she was about to lose it, but she remained there silent. I picture myself, I would have done anything in that moment to try to stop them from executing me thinking about the pain as these, these rocks would be pelted at my skin, elbows flying, throat punching, eye gouging. I'm not above it. I, biting and everything. I would have done whatever was necessary to stop them from taking my life 
brutally casting stones at me. And yet she says nothing. The rocks would smash into the body, crushing and shattering the bones just beneath the skin. The pain would be too much to bear. One would pass out just from the pure agony of the stones. And this was not even the worst of it. This brutal beating, this execution, pales in comparison to what would have happened next. If that woman would have been executed, if she would have died there on the spot, if she would have lost her life that day while she was lost in sin, she would have been destined to spend eternity in the torture chambers of hell. The abuse that she would have taken by the stones would be nothing in comparison to what her eternity would be like. Sometimes we get caught up in the temporal. We get caught up in what's happening now, what we can see. But Jesus is understanding the entire situation and he knows there's something much more at stake here than just her life here on earth. You know, when I think about heaven and I think about hell and I think about the promise of eternity with him where he talks about this joy. He talks about happiness, a place where there's no longer going to be sorrow or pain, no more sickness. Look, I'm only 42 and a lot of places hurt when I wake up in the morning. I'm looking forward to the day when I wake up and there's no more joint pain. My back feels great. I'm hoping that in that transition, my eyes work without the glasses. But there is this paradise that God has promised us, that he has set for us, that is awaiting us, where the things that we value here on earth are so small there that the streets are made of gold. Heavenly dirt is gold. How beautiful is that? And then I think about the alternative and what's on the mind of Christ all the time. Because we can choose to live for him or we can choose to live for this world. We can choose heaven or we can choose hell. And I know we don't talk about it a lot. We've said here lately that we wish we talked more about heaven because in old times it was something that came up over and over again. And I think that's right. We should be talking about heaven because it's this glorious place that God has prepared for us. But we should not stop speaking about hell. When there's such dire consequences, people need to be aware of the fact that I can choose life or I can choose death. I think about hell sometimes and what a dark and awful place that is and the constant torture that somebody's gonna experience for all of eternity. And the other day I was thinking about it and I thought, you know what, God? This is a gift to us. The great grossness of hell and knowing it in advance is a gift to us because we can look when presented with 
heaven and hell. And we can make an easy decision. Man, even if you want to be logical and think about it and and balance it out and and start to mark, well, you gain this in, in heaven, you get all these good things, but in hell, you don't get those things. You get all these bad things. You can be that person that likes to mark everything out and, and build it out and put it on the scales and weigh it. And it's obvious the heaven is the place of choice. Man, even if you're selfish and you only care about yourself. I have a friend of mine that said, man, I'd never hurt me. I love me too much. (laughs) He used to crack me up. But the reality of it is true. Like heaven is this great place that God has for us and he wants us to go there and hell is awful and we don't want people to be confused by it. We want them to understand that, man, when presented with it, We talk about the power of choice all the time, but how often do we really present both options? Like, I want you to choose, but I'm not really giving you the facts. How sad would it be that we reach a place where people we know are lost and they died in their sins and we never, we talk to them all about heaven, but we never presented to them that, man, if you don't choose him, this is where, this is the other side of it. Capital One Banking released an ad campaign. I don't know how old it is, but I caught it some time ago and and it just cracked me up. The purpose was to show that it was easy to see how much better Capital One Banking was compared to everything else. I've asked them to put an image up on the screen. That right there is two kids. Those are the captains about to choose a basketball team amongst their friends. I don't know. They might be 10, 11 years old, and and they're on the basketball court. This is what the ad is, is, is showing us. They're on the basketball court, and they're about to pick their teams. And, and right as one person starts to say, I, I pick Charles, the screen flips, and you see that Charles is actually 11-time all-star retired NBA player Charles Barkley. And, And in the video, right there in that moment, he's looking to that kid because he's starting to taunt him and he's saying, I told you they'd pick me first. And then they come back on and they say, yeah, picking Capital One Banking is even easier than that. Well, I want to say that picking heaven over hell is even easier than that. When we look at the facts, it's an easy decision for us. I want to be in heaven. I want to make it, Lord. I want to be with him. Easy choice for us. I believe that her ability to sit there in silence when her life was on the line was directly tied to how Jesus was responding. Directly tied to that. I see her cast to the ground, her mind wondering what she's going to do next as they're trying to decide her fate and And they're talking to Jesus and they're making a big deal about everything and they're calling out her sins and and everything that she's done wrong and pointing out the fact that she shouldn't be able to live 
And she looks up just out the corner of her eye and catches a glimpse of what Jesus is doing. And sees him bow down saying nothing. Or maybe even when she looked up out of the corner of her eye, maybe at that moment while Jesus was bending down, he looked up towards her. Maybe their eyes met. I don't know what happened, but I can tell you that what Jesus was doing brought a peace to her and a comfort to her that she was willing to do the same. If he sits there silent, if he doesn't get in an an uproar, if he's not yelling, if he's not condemning me, then neither will I. We need to allow our responses to be directly tied to how he responds. How's Jesus doing it? What do we see in scripture when faced with situations like we're faced with in this world? I don't want to allow my emotions to get the best of me. I wasn't joking. I would have bitten off somebody's peaky finger. No joke. But that's my emotions. Jesus was looking much further beyond the moment. And if we allow ourselves to let God speak to us in prayer and through his word, we will see clearly how we should respond to everyday circumstances. And God will give us the strength to do it to where we don't veer from the mission. That we make decisions and choices and respond based on that. To be in right relationship with God, we often have to ignore our accusers. We have to make the decision that we will listen to Jesus instead of our accusers. Oftentimes, the enemy gets into our head and into our hearts, and he brings our sins and failures to our attention with great clarity to make us think that there's no way God would forgive us. You don't have to raise your hands, but I know because I'm breathing the same air that you're breathing. I'm living on the same planet that you're living, that there are times when the enemy brings back to remembrance those things that we have done wrong is an effort to condemn us, is an an effort to get us to stop moving forward, to quit progressing. And then there's other people, people that may mock our attempts to live for the Lord and say that it won't last. Man, I don't know. So many people in this room have been living for God 30, 40, 50 years. The naysayers have probably shut up and gone home. They're like, we understand it's, it's been this long. They're going to continue doing it. But for those of us that are in this room where you might be somewhat new to your walk with God, a year, two years, three years, five years, you probably still have people in your life that are around you that will talk about you, if not to your face, behind your back, and they will talk about you that you won't be able to make it. They'll talk amongst friends and say, I remember when when Joe used to do this. There's no way Joe's going to be able to keep not doing that. Or or that Susie or Tina can't keep doing what they're doing now. It's going to reach a point when they're going to fail and it's all going to come tumbling down. And I will be able to say, I told you so. These are the voices we have to choose to ignore in our lives. You're not going to get away from the voices. 
They're going to be there. The haters will always be there. The people that want misery loves company. The people that are mad at themselves and not satisfied with their own lives who are watching you succeed and watching you walk in the new life that God has given you. They're going to want you to come back into the broken world in which they still live. But you have to say, I refuse. I'm not going to listen to those voices. I'm not going to act upon their accusations. But what about when it's not the enemy and it's not other people, it's the man in the mirror? What about when you're dealing with self-condemnation? It comes when you feel guilty from things that you know you've done in the past. Even if you're living good now and even if you're faithful in your walk with God now, sometimes you yourself start to look at things and you say, no, there's no way I deserve this. I know the pain I've caused, the hurt I've inflicted. I know what I've done. I don't deserve this. And you start to look back at those things that you were and you start to condemn yourself under the weight of the guilt. And guilt is heavy. Let me remind you of Proverbs 24, 16. For a just man falleth seven times and rises up again. For you that are living in a moment where it's tough to get away from yourself, where you're feeling like you don't deserve the goodness of God, when you're feeling like you've caused too much harm and too much pain to be experiencing all the good things that God is doing for you and the weight of that condemnation is setting upon your shoulders, I want to remind you, God is saying, shake that off and get back up. Get up. Don't lay on the ground. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't allow yourself to be sidetracked. Remember what's at stake. Man, we're not working for something temporal here on earth. We're on track for something glorious. And if Jesus was not condemning this woman in this moment, then why would we condemn ourselves in this one? It's not what he wants for us. John 3, 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Not to condemn the world. He didn't send his son to condemn the world when he was here on earth, when he gave his life on the cross, when he rose again from that grave, and he did not send his son. Jesus did not come to condemn the world then, And he has not come to condemn the world now. Who's his hands and feet now that he's no longer here on earth? We are. We are. He fills us with his spirit and empowers us to go and to be a light unto the world. That did not change the mission. We don't all of a sudden get a little bit of authority under our belt and we walk around with a hammer looking for people to crush. If Christ, who was perfect, gave his life for us, unwilling to condemn but came to save, then every action we take should be done the same. 
I'm not calling people's sins out. We're not looking to embarrass and humiliate people. We're not trying to destroy them. We're not trying to prove ourselves right. We're looking for opportunities to get a hold of them, a firm grasp on them so that we can pull them from the grips of hell. That's what we're trying to do because Christ wants to use us to reach them. They, the prosecutors did not let Jesus off the hook, though. They didn't. They continue to press him. They demanded he pass judgment on her sin. And finally, he stood up, wiped the dust off his hands, and in one sentence blew apart their entire scheme. When Jesus responded in verse 7, he that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. He gave them permission to carry out justice just as long as they never needed mercy. That's got to sit in. Jesus set a precedent in this text for you and I. Careful who we judge and who we condemn. You can do it. Yes, you can. You can be that person to condemn somebody and judge somebody, but only if you're the one that's never sinned yourself. Only if you're the one that never needs mercy yourself. You don't need the grace of God. Let's be that clear about it, that we would only have the right to cast those stones if we did not need the grace of God. I don't want to play that out. I don't want to be the one who tries it. I don't want to be the one who says, no, I think I can get to an eternity of blissfulness without Jesus Christ. I think everything will work out. It won't. It won't. The reality is beautiful, though. You need him, and I need him. My neighbor needs him. My cousin needs him. My wife needs him. My kids need him. Everybody needs him. And if everybody needs him, none of us have a right to get a hold of the stone. None of us have the right to cast it at the person. We don't have the right. Jesus makes it clear. I'm going to hurry through these next few points here. According to Moses' law, when someone was sentenced to death by stoning, one of the witnesses of that capital crime had to cast the first stone followed by the other witnesses before others could help carry out the punishment. Hear this. They did not get to make baseless accusations against someone and then be done. Wash their hands of it. They had to be involved in carrying out the sentence. And if they were caught lying, they suffered the same sentence they intended for the accused. You had to be an eyewitness of the account if you were going to bring it to the courts. And it couldn't just be one person's word. It had to be the word of two at bare minimum before they would even look at your case or act upon justifying what you were saying. It was required of that for them. But too often these days, people will hear about something 
and so easily accuse over that which they have never witnessed. You needed to know it. And as Jesus proves in this story, even if you know it, that doesn't mean that he's going to carry out the execution. You had to be certain. It couldn't be hearsay. It couldn't be somebody that you talked to and somebody that said, I think I saw this. No, you had to see it. And you had to be so certain that when the punishment was coming across, you were the one casting the first stone. Had to be that way. We must guard ourselves. In this day and age that we live, it is so easy to hear something and go straight to social media. You know why talking about posting on social media is so awkward? Because it's so true. It's the easiest thing in this day and age to assassinate somebody's character and reputation and feel like you didn't do nothing. You didn't cast a stone. You sat behind a screen and a keyboard and you typed and you hit send and without even thinking about the repercussions went on about your day eating ice cream while somebody else on the other side are, are, are feeling the pain of thousands of eyes that are looking at the accusations that have just made against them. That's the world in which we live. I beg of you, don't allow yourself to get caught up in that. That's not how Jesus would respond, and that's not how we should respond either. Jesus and the woman were left alone. As a result of turning an ear away from your accusers and towards Christ, it brings us to this beautiful place where we are alone with him. The people all left in this moment, they were gone. And Jesus was left alone with her. It was in this moment where Jesus was able to talk to her and she actually spoke for the first time. He was able to allow her the understanding of the grace and mercy he was about to bestow upon her because they were there alone because she had ignored everything else that everyone was saying and she got alone with Jesus. I'm gonna tell you in this world we live in, while they were physically alone, all the people were gone, I know from experience that in this world of chaos, if I will tune out all of the negativity and all of the naysayers and the enemy and my self-doubt and I will start to tune in and listen to what God is saying about me and about my life, then all of a sudden, even though there's thousands of people around, I find myself alone with him. And it's in those moments that God can speak to us and that God can shape us and, and God can help us to understand. She probably felt like a loser but in just a few sentences, Jesus changes everything that she thinks about herself. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? No, no man. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Stand with me.
something that can be overlooked as we study this narrative is the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus spoke in a way, and we unpacked it here this morning on the positive impact that it made on this woman and how it preserved her, not just for here on earth, but for eternity. But he also handled it in such a way that those people that he knew was venomous, that he knew had ulterior motives, the scribes and the Pharisees. It said that when Jesus handled this the way that he handled this, they were convicted in their conscience. Can I tell you that when we let God handle it his way, God can touch even those that are the accusers. And he wants to. Oh, no greater joy than for him to be able to preserve this woman and at the same time to be reaching for those accusers those that are full of hate, those that want to destroy, those that are causing discord among everyone. He was reaching for them both. We have no record of what happened next for the scribes and the Pharisees. We know that they execute Jesus, but we don't know what that did in their hearts when they reflect on this moment. We don't know if one or two out of 300 ended up coming to Christ after all things were said and done because of this moment where they remembered he could have done this differently, but he chose to handle it in a way that extended grace not just to her, but to them. 